funny because I, um, when I'm hearing, I, I, I know I know most of this history, and as I'm hearing it going, I still find myself getting really tense. Like, is it all going to work out okay? And, um, I, I think that one of the things that that is good to think about when you think about the messiness of history is that the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is, is writing a story. The Holy Spirit is preserving the church. The Holy Spirit is instructing the church. And then the Holy Spirit is, continues to be active, um, safeguarding our belief and our faith. And, and so I think this is why that the Nicene Creed is so important to CTR, that it is a gift of the Holy Spirit that safeguards our faith. And so Wright is now going to lead us in a meditation of its beauty. All right? Is that okay? Hello, everybody. Bye, Ray. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to sit down because my knees have been bothering me. And um, I never do this, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to read. I'm going to read uh, a, a text because I, I, I want to say it right. <laughs> when you're talking about the Nicene Creed, you really have to try to get it right. And so I've tried to get it right in my manuscript here. Can you talk just a tad can you talk just a tad louder? I can try, yes. Thank you. You can sit a little closer if you want to also. <laughs> um, and um, I didn't mean that as a put down. I will try to talk louder. And raise your hand if you can't hear me. Not now, but, but later. And the other thing is I'll make a deal with you. I won't ask you any questions if you won't ask me any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I understand That's that there's so a fair. time for questions and answers later. And uh, I'm a bear, a very little brain, and, and, and it's hard for me if I'm onto something. If I get, my wife will tell you this, if I get interrupted, I don't mean that in a bad sense, but in a neutral sense, I lose it. And you don't want any, you don't want that. It's a waste of everybody's time. So just please note your questions and hold them, if that's, if that's okay. So when I was a boy, um, we, when my father was at sea, he was in the Navy, or after he retired in 1958, we lived in Pensacola, Florida, where my mother uh, had a house that she inherited from her parents. And uh, sometimes we would drive north, everything's north of Pensacola, and we would go through uh, uh, Alabama and Georgia uh, towards the Carolinas and Virginia. I went to a boarding school up in Virginia. And along the side, you'd see these barns, most of them dilapidated because uh, <coughs> cotton had long since lost its value. And to augment their income, the farmers would let people paint signs and big letters on the tops of their barns. The two inscriptions we saw the most were Sea Rock City. Rock City is a rock formation up near Chattanooga somewhere, and it's a tourist attraction. And the other thing we saw on these barns and on countless signs along the road were the words, Jesus saves. This is the Bible Belt. Now, as Episcopalians, we didn't use that sort of religious vocabulary. And I later found out when I studied at the liberal Episcopal seminary that the words Jesus saves were often met with scorn and derision. Sorry to say. I never felt that way, however. Even before I was born again at the age of almost 20, I, I, I thought, this sounds important to me, and I think this is what we believe, although I wouldn't say it that way then. Now much later, I think that these two words sum up the distinctive message of Christianity as contrasted with Judaism, which was the question in the background all along. We're monotheists, right? And yet we worship Jesus. 
The Jews say we're idolaters. We don't think so. What's going on here? The questions this statement raises, Jesus says, raises, however, are such as, who is Jesus? From what does he save us? How can he save? How does he save? These questions stand at the very heart of the Arian controversy, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed and the Orthodox Christian teaching about Jesus Christ. Orthodox here, I mean not in the sense of capital O, Eastern Orthodox, but, but what the Latin churches and the, and the, and the Greek churches, or including the Russian, the Eastern Orthodox churches have believed. It's different from the to some degree from the Coptic church and the Egyptian church and the Syrian church. Um, although recently they've been received again as, as uh, Orthodox, but this is what the, the, the Latin, the, the churches of the old Roman Empire, most, most of it, believe. So we have the creed behind us, or do we yet? And we've, we've been through it, so it starts, we believe, uh, the second article of the creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord, there's only one Lord. And he is Jesus Christ. This Lord is unique. There, there may be other so-called Lords, as Paul says, but only one Lord. Now the word Lord, as you probably know, um, comes from the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that, that was made in Alexandria, probably a couple hundred years before Christ. And they translated the word Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name of God, into kurios, the Greek word for Lord. So clearly, when they spoke, of, when the Christians were talking about the Lord, they were saying this Lord is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. One Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the human name of this man, of course. It's the same as Joshua in the Old Testament. It means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. So the angel says to uh, Joseph in Matthew 1.21, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. One Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, God's Anointed One. This is his, his, his office and his title, although it becomes a name. Jesus Christ is now a name for us, but... But Jesus is really the name Christ as a title. And some Old Testament texts point towards this Christ as being a divine figure. And I'll eventually put this text up on one of my websites. And I have a lot of scripture references here that I'm not going to read out to you or cite for you. But in the New Testament, the divine sonship of the Christ is made more explicit. For example, who do men say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Who do you say I am? You are what? The Christ. the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, the Son. And there are other places too. Uh, John 1, 7. Um, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all our sins. The Christ, the Son, who was Jesus. The creed goes on, the only, now the ecumenical, the new ecumenical version, uh, which is widely used, although it, it, not, not by everybody, uh, they say the only Son of God, the original says the only begotten Son of God. The word for begotten is Greek is monogenes, and after a while, 
in, in recent years, recent decades, people have said, you know, this, this doesn't really necessarily mean only begotten, because, for example, Isaac was the monogonase, the only son of uh, Abraham, but he wasn't really the only begotten son of Abraham, because there was another son, right? Ishmael, but he was unique in that he was the only one from Sarah. Sorry, that's the southern right? From Sarah, Sarah. And uh, he was a unique son, the, the son of the covenant. So people argued for that. And so back when this creed was translated and published in 1975, that was in vogue, partly because of the scholarship of a man named Raymond Brown, a Roman Catholic scholar. Since then, however, people have gone deeper into this, and they have realized that if, if you look at all of Greek literature, uh, monogenes uh, almost certainly means only begotten. And I, and I go for that myself because it occurs twice later on in the creed. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, right? And later, later on it says begotten, not made. That's twice other than the term only begotten. So I think the fathers are talking about begetting and being begotten here. Not just being unique, but being begotten. The only begotten Son of God. And the background for this is Psalm 2, 7, where... Uh, God says, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. And that's quoted later twice in the New Testament, referencing Jesus, Jesus, the son of God. So I, I believe it ought to be only begotten, as it was in earlier translations. Gregory of Nazianzus wrote that, that the terms father and son denote an identity of nature between him that is begotten and him that begets. I'll go further and then come back. So eternally begotten, begotten of the world before all ages, indicates what is called the in eternal generation of the Son. Now we cannot imagine such a thing. In our life, a father begets a child and, and it's an act. It, it can't go on continuously, but this, <laughs> that's not what, this is one of those analogies that Hogan mentioned that it, it doesn't work here. We're talking about what has come to be called the eternal generation of the Son. And I dropped it because it made no sense. I picked it up since because I think it is biblical. The Father has always been the Father. So right now, what only begotten should mean, I think, is that it, it is implying or saying clearly a common life, a com common being, a common essence. And, and, and I think... Somebody was pointing to this. My daughter Sarah has my DNA, and her mother's, of course. So that's what's being emphasized here, is a common life, a common being, a common substance, a common nature. That will come up later as homoousion. But there is no temporal connotation. There's no before and after sequence. So father and son stand in a relationship together that we'll explore further. <laughs> But these words do not connote exactly or all that they do when we're talking about humans. The father being older than the son. This is where Arius went wrong. Father, son. Father's older than sons. Right? We all know that. No. Stop right here. That's true on the human level, but it doesn't work for the divine level. The eternal father has always had a son. Otherwise, he could not be an eternal father. When did he start being father? Well, Arius would say, when he made the son. Well, no, that can't be, because the son is eternal also. So as I said, son indicates identity of life, essence, being, nature, substance. 
with the Father. The creed goes on, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the old translation was very God or very God. These are three ways of saying the same thing. The Son is equally divine with the Father. He is God. So he is the express image of his person, for example, in Hebrews. Or Paul says in Philippians, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to. No, but he emptied himself of some of his divine prerogatives, mostly glory and so on. Or Paul said in, in Colossians that in him, that is in Jesus or the Christ, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in bodily form. I'm conflating two passages there. So all of the fullness of God comes into this one person, Jesus Christ. The creed goes on, of one being or one substance with the Father. Substance comes from the Latin word consubstantialem, and being comes from the Greek word homoousion. They, they, they have slightly different connotations. And so the Greeks and, and the Latins had to talk about this one for a hundred years or so, but finally they, they, uh, they agreed. That, yeah, okay, you mean what we mean, sort of, we mean what you mean, sort of, and we all believe the same thing, truly. They, they, they finally realized that. Now, homoousios, like, sorry, homoousios, of like or similar nature, could mean that, but it's not clear, and Arius didn't want it to mean that, so that's why they fought over this word. And uh, Hogan, you did a great job on this background. Um, um, thank you. So, so pretty much, it, 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 Arius was exiled five, uh, sorry, Athanasius became bishop after Alexander. He was exiled five times, depending on which way the imperial wind was blowing. And um, he was exiled because he held on to this word, homoousios. So the iota made a world of difference. No, we don't want homoi with an, with an iota there, an I. We want to keep that out, it's homoousios. No iota. At one point, all the bishops, it seemed, had agreed with Arius. There is a phrase in, the, in, in, old, in early church history, the world woke up and found its, one morning the world woke up and found itself Arian. Everybody agreed except one man, Athanasius. This stubborn man who kept insisting on homoousios. So there's a phrase that, that I was taught early in my life, the, the Christian life, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He wasn't the only one, but he was the only one willing to stand up, and, and he had the prestige of being bishop of, Alex, of Alexandria. So, so the Orthodox party said the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the way the Greek works on this, it's, it's uh, translated literally into English, God was the Word, but the English doesn't get it because we don't use the definite and the indefinite article the same way. Uh, but when the Greek puts it like this, God was the Word, with the Word Theos, God, with no article. And the word, the word, with the article here, on the other side of the verb, it's saying not who the Word was, the Word was God, but what the Word was. The Word was God. Not just divine, because Arius said, sure, he's divine. Jehovah's Witnesses said, yeah, he's divine. They're Arians, by the way. No, he is God. In nature. And that's not who he is, but what he is. Deep down inside, at bottom, in his being, in his nature, he is God, fully God. 
And this comes up in other places. Jesus said, uh, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. Where the gender here, uh, the neuter gender of one, so I and the Father, that's two, are, that's two, and then one. And the word one is neuter, mean, meaning not that we are one identical person, that would be schizophrenia, but that we, partake, we are one thing, <laughs> we partake of one nature. The Greek gets very helpful here. It's a very subtle, sophisticated language, more so than, than Latin, which gets the Greeks into trouble, but it, it, it preserves for us. Finally, when the Romans and the Greeks get together, it preserves for us some very important scriptural distinctions. And of course, we know Thomas, when he saw Jesus, a week after everybody else did, my, said, my king and my God. And Paul says in, uh, in uh, Titus, we await the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, God says, I am Savior, there is no other Savior. Yeah. Amen. Yahweh says that. So when you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, if you decide to waste your time on that, it's, uh, you, all you have to say, there's several things, but one of them is, the Old Testament says clearly, Yahweh says, I am Savior and there's no other. Jesus is Savior, so he is our Savior, he is God. Now, Arius and his followers were not stupid. They appealed to texts that seemed to indicate that the Son was inferior to the Father, as you've pointed out. And thus was a second-class deity. First of all, Son already implies some kind of subordination. They also insisted that the Son implies temporal sequence, just as my daughter is younger than I am. Everybody agreed that the Son was begotten, so he must have been born after the Father made something. At some point, there was a time when he was not the Word. They claim that the phrase firstborn over all creation, or sorry, firstborn of all creation in Colossians 1.15 and its background text, I will make him my firstborn, show that Christ was born first and there were others born. Inferior to him, but still. But the Orthodox party replied that Psalm 89 and Colossians 1.15 are talking not about an eldest son's chronological priority, but the supremacy that comes to the firstborn. It's, it's, it's rule, it's sovereignty, it's status here. They also quoted texts like Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am, ego and ye, which is Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Or um, in Exodus 3.14, and John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The Greek tense of the verb was there is imperfect. And that indicates in this context, always was, no beginning, no end. Therefore, they pointed to the uh, eternal nature of the word. He did not come to be as all other things, in verse 3 of John 1, all things that were made or came to be, came to be through him. He did not come to be. He was not made. But there's some Arian texts that are a little bit harder to handle, such as John 15, 19. The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. And of course, John 14, 28. The father is greater than I. What do you do with that? So they were using the Bible. Everybody agreed that the Bible is the Word of God, and so what's going on here? And then there are other subordinationist passages of, of a similar nature, and this is where Origen is coming from, this is where Arius is coming from. So the orth and statements like Father and Son, of course, and the Father sent the Son, this was pointed out earlier, or the Father has given all things into the hands of the Son. Hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? The Father has stuff, he gives it to the Son. Clearly he had stuff before, before what? Or was it before? What do these terms mean? 
Well, the Orthodox reply that father and son are relational, not ontological terms. Augustine especially spelled this out in his book on the Trinity. But they agreed. The father is indeed somehow prior to the son, not in time or in deity, but in role and function. And that the father is, yes, somehow the source. The Greek word is arche. I used to bristle at this, but now I agree with it. It's funny how when you... When you're 15, your father knows nothing. When you're 21, he's learned a little bit, you know. <laughs> After you've had children, oh, I see. I see. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I saw a cartoon one time. Once you become a teenager, you forgive your parents everything. Oh, sorry. Once you have a teenager, you forgive your parents yeah, everything. everything. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so I look back at these early fathers, for whom, by the way, Greek was their mother tongue the East, in the Eastern Church. And... Um, I now will say, yes, the father is to some degree the archaic of the son. That is to say, somehow or another, he is a kind of source, but not temporarily, because there, we can't go with areas. There was a time that the word was not. So in recent times, this question has resurfaced, in case you want to know how important this is. <laughs> Please don't stone me now. So just wait a while, okay? As people have debated whether wives should submit to their husbands. Now, we're meddling. The, the wives are equal to them in nature and worth. Everybody agrees with that. The egalitarians say that Christ was only subject to the Father either temporarily, while he was on earth, or in his manhood. Now, there's at least one theological problem with this position. Orthodox theologians of all sorts, egalitarians and complementarians, say that according to the Chalcedonian formulation, though the two natures of Christ can be distinguished, they cannot be separated. When Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, he spoke not only as a man, but also as the eternal Son of God. And throughout John 5, which has a lot of this subordination, this language in it, he is speaking as the Son, the incarnate Son of God. And he talks about, I can't do anything unless, except what the Father does, I can't say anything except what he tells me to do, and so on. So this is a relational term. So, complementarians reply, yes, wives are equal in nature, to their husbands in worth and dignity, but they should submit just as the son submits to the father. They take this further and say that the son has always submitted to the father. So it became a matter of contention recently, among Protestants at least. So this has produced the phrase, the eternal functional subordination of the son to the father. And history shows that the early fathers and later theologians up until very recently have always taught this. But be because debates bring out things we hadn't thought about or articulated so clearly before, this has been a very helpful debate. So what we see now is that there are texts in Scripture that, that could be used by Arians, but once you to show that the Son is inferior in deity, but we don't take them that way. We see them now as relational terms. Many texts in the New Testament that ascribe some sort of priority to God the Father, often simply called God, some relationship or priority between him and the son. So this helps, for example, 1 Corinthians 11.3, which used to drive me crazy, uh, in terms of Trinitarian theology. The head of every man is Christ. Okay, that's fine. I'm, head, I'm fine with that. The head of woman is man. That's what they say. But here's the thing. And the head of Christ is God? Well, if we're not talking about being in essence, but we're talking about a relationship, just as with husband and wife, same being, same nature, same dignity and worth. But there is a kind of 
role difference. Likewise with the Father and the Son. Of course the Son is homoousion, homoousios, with the Father, of course, but there's some kind of relationship here. So it has come now to be called the eternal functional subordination of the Son to the Father. The creed goes on now, through him all things were made, and that's clear from Scripture. In, uh, well, that's John 1, 3. In Colossians 1, 16 says, by him all things were created. Hebrew says that. So he is the eternal word by and through whom the world was made. Genesis says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said this, and it happened. So it was the word of God, the eternal word of God, the logos of God, which is eternal. If the logos is the mind of God, then he is. Logos meaning mind and word and a bunch of other things, but these two at least. So the thought and the expression of the thought, the thought being the mind and the, the word, the expression of it being the word. When do you separate the mind of God from God himself? He must always have had his mind. And he must always, therefore, had at least a latent word that could be spoken out. And when it was spoken out, the worlds came into being. So the word is eternal. There could never have been a time when the word was not because God would have been mindless, literally. By the way, this shows that a personal being, not an impersonal power or principle, underlies the entire universe. We don't say, may the force be with you. <laughs> right? There are forces, but they've been created by a personal God who spoke a personal word, who has a name, Jesus. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven. Or, sorry, reading the ecumenical version of 1975. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. I want to talk about these phrases now. He came down. This is clearly Johannine literature. He descended as Son of God from heavenly glory to this earth. So we're talking here about the eternal Son of God coming down here now to live among us as the God-man. He became incarnate, that is, in flesh. Here, flesh, not in the way Paul sometimes using it, emphasizing the sin of mankind, but here, flesh, as in the Old Testament usage generally, and in John largely, our current condition, that is to say, our frailty and our mortality. Now, the Ecumenical Creed of 1975 says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't think they should have added power of. It's not in there. It's more than that. He was made man not just by the power of the Spirit, though he was, but by the, but the presence and the action of the Spirit in his human birth brought the Godhead into union with the human person, Mary. Or with her, what was in her womb. Okay, so... I, I was reading over the Greek text of this this morning again, and I noticed something I've never noticed before. In the Greek, it's very clear. He was incarnate, it says. Ek, that preposition means from or of or out of. And then there are two phrases that follow. From, out of, the Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary. The one preposition governs, governs both the Holy Spirit and Mary, showing clearly that they're trying to say this incarnation was of the Spirit and of the Virgin Mary simultaneously. Her nature and his nature. Of course, incarnate, became incarnate reflects in, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, verse 1 of John, and then later on, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The new translation says, from the Virgin Mary. I, I prefer the older one that said, of the Virgin Mary, instead of from, because again, he is, of course it was through the Virgin Mary, um, or from the Virgin Mary. Yes, he, he issued from her womb, but he is of her. Substance. It's not just that I'm a traditionalist, which I am, it's that I think that the older translations were closer to the, the Greek and even the Latin, where the Latin's involved. And was made man. He was fully man as well as fully God. Here I go again. Therefore, I prefer the older translation, who for us men and for our salvation, they took out us men because they're trying to allay fears about uh, uh, gender bias. But that's not why this was in here. The Greek word is anthropos, the Latin word is homo, uh, man, and in each case, it's, it's not for male, it's mankind in general. He became a human. And so this word, he became, uh, uh, in, in uh, sorry, he was made man is <coughs> a Greek word, uh, was made man is all one Greek word, the middle of which is anthropos. So he was anthropized. <laughs> that goes back to for us men and our salvation, he came down for heaven. The point here is the divine son who came down for us men, humans, became a man, a human, just like us. For the sake of humans, he became a human. That's what the original translation into English was meant to convey. So he could be tired and hungry and thirsty and he could be killed on a cross. You know, one difference between men and women is that when men are upset, they can't talk. Women seem to do well being both upset and talking about it. Um, but men just have to stop. As fully man, he fulfilled all God's moral requirements for mankind as our representative. And thus he earned righteousness that could be imputed to us. As fully man, he was our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, bearing our guilt and our penalty as our representative and substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. As fully man, he can be one, the one mediator between God and man, humans. As fully man, he fulfilled God's original purpose for humans to rule over the creation. So as man, he has been crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews 2.9, reflecting Psalm 8. As fully man, he is our example and pattern in life. So we are meant, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And even now, we are gradually being conformed to his moral likeness. Romans 8, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, as by the Spirit. The man Jesus, as fully man, he is patterned 
for our redeemed and glorified bodies. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. As fully man, he can sympathize with us as our great high priest. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, but one who is tempted in every respect, just as we are, yet without sin. And he took on flesh and blood. The Son of God took on flesh and blood. He will be man forever. He will return as he left. They saw him go up into heaven as a man, and he will come back. Paul saw this man, Jesus, glorified as the Son of God on the Damascus road. He is now one like a son of man. He was fully man, not just man in appearance, as some said. He had a human body and a human mind. He had will and emotions. And he had, Chalcedon said, uh, which is where this creed is coming from, that this man had two natures. The God-man had two natures, contrary to some. He had two wills. Of course, they were always in harmony with one another. But he had only one persona, person, or hypostasis. Persona is the Latin word, of course. That is to say, both the divine and human natures dwelt in the same body, the body of Jesus Christ. So the Council of Chalcedon says, we confess that one and the same Christ, Lord and only begotten Son, is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, change, division, or separation. There, there are reasons behind each one of these words. The distinction between the natures was never abolished by their union. So God remains God, Man remains man, but rather the character proper to each of the two natures was preserved as they came together in one person, the Latin word, and one hypostasis, Greek word. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. I ask you now, in light of this Christology, who was crucified, died, and was buried? Only the man Jesus in his humanity or the complete God-man, the incarnate Son of God? Yes, the man Jesus died, the just for the unjust. But if only man died, as Athanasius saw very clearly, we cannot be saved. For no human offering can pay the penalty owed by sinful humanity to an infinitely holy God. Only a fully divine person could satisfy the righteous wrath of God who had been offended by us. So we affirm that the Son of God and fleshed in the body of Jesus, the complete Christ, died for us. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that the church of God was purchased with his own, that is, God's own blood. Ephesians, uh, Acts 20, 28. Since God the Father is spirit, only God the Son, the incarnate God, could shed blood to redeem us from our sins. Incomprehensible? Yes. Essential for our salvation? Yes. That is why the creed begins with the word credo, or Credimus, uh, because we don't understand this, but we believe it. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Who rose? Only the man or the complete Christ, the Son of God, united forever with the body of Jesus. Those who believe in him are also even now spiritually raised to the right hand of the Father, where we have instant access to the throne of grace through the Son by the Spirit. These believers in Christ have royal authority now, even on earth, not only to cast out demons in the name of Jesus and to resist Satan in the name of Jesus, but to rule over their still sinful bodies by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of the risen Christ, who is the Spirit of God. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Who ascended? 
Only the Son of God or the complete Christ, the God-man, in whom therefore we rose and ascended. Who now sits at the right hand of the Father? The complete Christ, the God-man. The Son of God, who has forever joined himself to the body of Jesus, and in whom by faith we also rose and are seated at the right hand of the Father. Now here's where the idea of eternal functional subordination helps. The Son of God is seated at the right hand of the Father. There are two of them, the Father and the Son. Furthermore, the Father is seated on the throne, with the Son at his right hand. A position of highest honor compared to all others, of course, but of secondary honor compared to the monarch on the throne. But there's only one throne. If you can picture that. Christ is seated on the same throne as the Father, sharing in his rule over all the universe. Revelation 22, 1 speaks of the throne of God, that is the Father, and of the Lamb, one throne with two occupants. The Father is God Almighty and Creator and Ruler of all. The Son is the Lamb, the God-man, who died to save us from our sins. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Who will come in glory? The Son of God, joined to the risen body of Jesus. As God, he has unique authority to judge. As man, he has the right to judge his fellow men, for he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law of God. Who will reign forever? The eternal Son of God, who shares in the Father's universal sovereignty, and can thus be called Lord, and inseparably, of course, the complete Christ, the God-man, who as man will call us up into his own rule as he promised his disciples, who now, possessing all authority in heaven and earth, commands his followers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one name, three divine persons, the risen Lord Jesus, the God-man, our Savior. So, how are disciples made? by proclaiming Jesus the only Savior, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus saves. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He saves us from the penalty of our sins if we repent and truly trust in him, because he died for us. As we rely daily on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God and of Christ, we can put to death the evil deeds of the body, thus gaining freedom from the power of sin even now, and one day risen with him in glory. Joining with myriads of angels and all the saints throughout history, we will be totally free even from the presence of sin. We're going to listen to a song in a minute, but the point is, Jesus saves. Athanasius, at the cost of five exiles, stood all alone against what seemed to be the whole Christian world, and that's the phrase Athanasius contramundum. He insisted courageously years ago on the words, basically, that meant what those words written in large letters on signs and barns by fundamentalists who have, did, you know, worlds apart in many ways, he would agree with them. Jesus saves. He saves completely. He saves comprehensively. 
Only he can save. But he does save. Praise God. I like this song. And listen to it in the light of, in the light of this creed.
I think I'd like to stay in this place yes. of worship. Yes, credo is in the context of worship. Yes, let's stay, let's stay in this place of worship for a moment of silence. Great God, creator of heaven and earth, eternal, holy, wise, righteous, powerful, immense in love and wisdom, tenderness and kindness. O Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father, eternal word. I will praise and thank you for the salvation that you have brought to us. Father and Son, by the Spirit, Jesus, thank you for coming as God, as man, to live, to teach, to heal, to deliver, and to die, to rise, to ascend, to sit at the Father's right hand, to send the Holy Spirit to all who repent and believe, and even now to pray for us as our sympathetic, divine High Priest. Oh, how we praise and worship, glorify, honor, adore, and thank you. 